how have you identified with a group or what group do you belong to? You can just think about that for a moment as I put on my group that I belong to. Some of you may know that I am a 12, and most of you are not a 12, <laughs> right? So I belong to exclusive group, which has my number retired, even though I've never played a down or coached, or they haven't even called me about my advice or opinion. But I am a 12. I am a fan of the Seattle Seahawks. All right, so I belong to them. And so we identify with our sports teams, don't we? Some of us do, right? We over-identify with our sports team. Right? We use the, the we, right? All right? We cut Cam Newton. Oh, did we? Yeah, right? We won the Super Bowl. You did. Wow. We didn't run the ball in the one-yard line. <laughs> No, they didn't call me. <laughs> right? We were signed Ronaldo. I mean, these are things we over-identify with. Trust me, Sundays on the uh, afternoon and the fall, you don't want to see me. I, I isolate myself from everyone else so no, no one else can see my over-identification and my idolatry and sin and the venom that comes out of my mouth towards my team. The reality is we're all part of different groups. All right, we belong, for better or worse, to a family. We belong, maybe some of us, to social clubs, a fraternity or sorority. Maybe we belong to a political party. Lots of things that we belong to. But hear this very carefully. We belong and we identify with the church. We belong and identify with the church because we belong to God. Scripture makes it quite clear. We are the body of Christ. The family of God. That being, that necessary that being in a relationship with Christ is not an individual act. It is a communal act. By very definition. I had a young man stop, uh, stop by this week. Not a part of the church, just a complete stranger. This is one of the beauties of actually uh, being back here in the office of working is that people stop by uh, just for lots of different reasons. And this guy stopped by, and he was kind of in distress and worried. I'm a young man, maybe early 20s. And he wanted, the first thing he said to me, he says, like, are you a man of God? And I was like, <laughs> I guess I'll do. Uh, do you want to be baptized? All right, all right there's, this is a conversation to have. And then he said, I want to be baptized because the rapture is happening soon. I'm like, oh boy, this is going to get into an interesting conversation now. And I said, let's, let's come in and talk. Let's come, this, is a, this is a good conversation. Let's, let's talk about why, and ask him, why does he want to be baptized? Why does he think the rapture is coming? And after a, a, this conversation, I think he began to realize I wasn't going to baptize him. <laughs> right there and right then. And we talked a little bit like that. But my advice ended up with being, this, I said, listen, what you need to do, because he doesn't belong to church, he doesn't go to a church, all right, he, he came to faith just by picking up a Bible, which is fantastic, where I said, like, you need to belong to a community. You need to attend a church. I said, you're welcome to come here and just 
begin to be a part with other Christians. He says, yeah, but isn't it just, just me and Christ? I said, no. Come. At that point, he realized that this wasn't going to happen, and he left. He's not here today. May he be at another church today. You cannot have a relationship with God without a relationship with the body of Christ. It's not how God has designed it. It's why being together on Sunday is so important that that Hebrews 10, right? Not neglecting to meet together. It's, it's why, like, during, during that COVID period where we couldn't meet together at all, it was hard. It's why that some of you at home, it's hard. You're not connected. It's the, being behind a screen is a one-way street. There's not a community behind it. And I, I, there's reasons why people are there. I get it at this moment. But man, it is not the same as being in relationship with the body of Christ. You don't just come here to hear me preach. You come here to be in relationship with each other. If you just want to hear someone preach, you could turn on the TV. Don't do that. You could read a book. It's, it's more than that. It's relationship with the body of Christ. We're going to talk more about that the last two weeks I've been talking about, well, last three weeks, but the last two weeks particularly I've been talking about repentance. Restitution is an act and fruit of repentance in our life. Paying the debt that we owe for our sin. And then restorative love is an act and fruit of repentance as well. Paying someone else's debt that you didn't need to pay. Perhaps you were thinking these last two weeks that I was teaching you as individuals. And I was. We repent as individuals. We ought to. And we individually ought to pay restitution. And we individually ought to enact in restorative love. But we belong to the covenant community of God. We belong to God's family. We belong to God's family based on God's promises to us. Like, that's very important to understand. We belong to God because of his promises to us. That's what I mean when I say covenant community. That word covenant means promises. God makes promise to us. That's why we belong to him. And then the, this predominant metaphor in scripture is that the marriage, that God's people are married to him. The one people are married to to him. And so it is based on the marriage is based on his promises, on his faithfulness, but in a marriage both parties make promises. Both parties ought to be faithful. Right? And so we make promises to God when we enter into this covenant community as well. And we need to be faithful together. Um, uh, the church in America, and just America in general, and, and a lot of people crit well, like, you mean you criticize America a lot, but at least it's the context I'm in. If I was in a church in Russia, I would criticize Russia a lot, right? It's not the context that we're in, or in China. I would probably criticize China a lot, but then I'd probably be in jail, right? So, but as Americans, we're very individualized. It's how we are. We just think it all is about me. I particularly think of this about, we're independent. But here's the thing. We need to corporately repent, not just individually repent, because we belong to each other. 
This means if we corporately repent, this means at times we repent of sins that we do not personally commit. Very clear. We repent of sins that we don't personally commit because we belong to each other. And we belong to the body of Christ. Right? You belong to me, and I belong to you. We belong to each other. There's a song in there. I want to, let's look, let's dive into what we read this morning, to Ezra, and to, to see the biblical precedence of this corporate communal repentance in our life. If we look at uh, the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. Uh, we've kind of separated them out, but they're one book, same timeline here. Right? I just, in the context, God exiled his people. God exiled his people. Because corporately, communally, they turn to other gods. They turn to idolatry. They went after other gods repeatedly. And yet in the midst of that, as a whole people, they were individually in that whole communal group, faithful people. People that were stayed faithful to God. Were there any of them righteous? No. But you can be faithful and unrighteous at the same time. In 586, right, just the, the historical background, the Babylonian Empire had already conquered them. But then they exiled the people out of the land, and they scattered. Some, some stayed, but they scattered them all throughout the empire. God's people. And they were spread out. And that, in Scripture, we said it was God's punishment for his people for turning to idolatry. It is a communal punishment by God. In 538, the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire. And by that time, the Persian Empire begins to bring God's people back. As God promised, I'll bring you back. And so slowly, they begin to come back. And then you get in this Ezra and Nehemiah. We have this a character as Rubelel who helps uh, rebuild the temple. In 516, the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And then you have Ezra. And his kind of job is to... Uh, not job, but his calling is that he wants a, a spiritual uh, awakening and renewal by the people of God, God's people. And so that's his job. And Nehemiah, his personal job is like he wants to help build the wall around the city. So they all kind of have three aspects of the renewal of God's people. And so we, we're in this book in Ezra. Ezra, so 516, the temple was rebuilt. 458, Ezra returns to Jerusalem. And you think about the time frame. It takes a while for all this to happen. But God's people are coming back to their land. So Ezra returns to Jerusalem. He's working on the moral and spiritual restoration of his people. Then Ezra runs into some problems. So why the people were exiled, why God's people were exiled throughout the lands, they intermarried with people with different beliefs, who had different faiths, who worshipped other gods. And God had forbidden this. And so this we get this intermarriage, which Ezra is talking about, is not about race or racism. In fact, when they said the holy race, that's not even a great, that's not a great interpretation or translation of that. Uh, the racism that it's experienced in like 400, 500 years, this is not a sermon about racism, is not really comparable or understandable to the context of the time. This doesn't even make sense for them. But this is about intermarriage, about other faiths, allegiance to God alone. This is what God has always been concerned about, right? I am God. I am God alone. And so they married people of other faiths, and so the concern with married people of other faiths is they're going to turn your allegiance to other gods, which is what Ezra is running into. 
really important. Ezra even identifies this. God allows other people groups, non-Israelites, to be a part of the covenant family. Has always allowed it. It's not about bloodline. right? It's, it's not about race or ethnicity. It's about, are you faithful to me? Ezra 6.28, he actually says this in this book. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them. That means all the other people of different ethnicity that had joined God's people while they were in exile who had returned and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord. Really, it's religious uncleanliness that those people turned and actually went towards God, the one true God. The issue is God's people turning away from God. And if you marry a, a spouse, or if you marry uh, someone else that worships other gods, they're going to turn your allegiance from you. It's going to turn your heart away from the one true God. Not all the times, but it's most likely. All of this, this holiness, this separation that, that is in the Old Testament of God's people from the world is really just a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of the singular alliance to Christ in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament is trying to, it's Christ alone who is God alone. All people are welcome, but there's only one true God. All these exiles and people were returning and were either a product of, of, of mixed faith marriages or have, they have distorted their faith and their allegiance to God alone. The issue, right, is this pervasive idolatry. The people come back. Ezra like, wants this moral and spiritual renewal. And the people come back and they're in idolatry. They don't even know who God is or worship the God. Which is very fascinating. Because that's the very reason why God exiled the people in the first place. Was because of their idolatry. It's so important to understand this little fact right here. God exiled people, the community, because of their idolatry. God brought them back. Why? Not because of the faithfulness of the people. In fact, while they were exiled, they were still just as bad or maybe got even worse. God brought them back because he made a promise. Because his grace to bring them back. His temporary discipline was over. Now it was time to gather his people back again. Nothing to do with the faithfulness of his bride or his people. This was a temp the exile was a temporary discipline of God. God is going to restore his people because this is the promise that he makes. Which gets to the whole point, what I want you to get is, is corporate and communal repentance. Did you hear Ezra's words this morning? How he identifies with the issues of his people. Ezra 9, 6 or 7. He turns and repents to God. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. He's not saying my iniquities. He's saying our iniquities. He is identifying. He's not saying for their iniquities. I'm not repenting, God, for your people's iniquities. But our. He's identified with it. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers 
to this day we have been in great guilt. Like this is generations now. It's not just this generation. I'm going to repent and I'm going to lead the people, your people, in repenting for sins years gone by. And our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to utter shame, as it is today. And then verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. You, you see what Ezra is doing? He's leading through a public repentance, a communal repentance of God's people. Now, did Ezra do all these things? Maybe in part, but most likely not. Ezra is leading God's people into a communal repentance, and then he wants to actually, action of repentance. Now turn your hearts and actually do the things that we ought to do. Let's be the people that God wants us to be, not just with words, but with our actions. This is what Ezra's calling in the life of Israel is. But we don't have, it's not just Ezra that does this. Look, Daniel does the same thing, leads in corporate repentance. Now, you read the book of Daniel, right? Does Daniel ever turn away from God? Daniel is the example of faith more than anyone in Scripture. In the midst of unfaithfulness, in the midst of pressure to be unfaithful. And Daniel 9, 11 says, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Daniel identifies with sins. Daniel repents of sins that are not personally his. Daniel leads God's people in that repentance. This is a, it's a precedent and a biblical practice of corporate confession. Even when you are not directly or indirectly responsible for that sin, it is important that we do this together. In fact, it is a commandment of God. Leviticus 26, 40. This is God speaking. But if they confess his people, their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me. So you, at the beginning of this, you can think, oh, he's just talking about, okay, if these individuals confess of their sins. But he doesn't go, goes beyond that. Right? If you can also confess the sins of the generations that have gone before you, if you do this, that is a corporate, communal repentance. That's right there in Scripture. Whether you committed that sin or not, whether you're directly or indirectly re responsible for that sin. And you may be asking about, this doesn't make sense. How can I be responsible for someone else's sin? Aren't my sins enough? <laughs> Isn't that a big enough burden to carry? Well, I mean, it is. But individual sins and corporate sins, I want you to hear this very clearly. Individual sins and corporate sins are not morally equal. Both repentance for individual sins and corporate sins are morally necessary and important. But they're not equal. 
They're not equal. We're called to individually repent. You need to individually repent. This is the fruit of the God's justification and sanctification, his work in your life. But you're also called to repent corporately, to identify with the body of Christ. In Jeremiah 31.30, But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Don't be like, hey, I'm going to get punished for someone else's sin. No, no, no. Your sins are enough. They do the job. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. That's a set on edge, teeth set on edge. That's like the chalk, you know, going out. It just ir- irritates you. That's what that expression means. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their own fathers. Each shall be put to death for his own sin. I guess that's good news. Right? The, the point is that individual sin, this is how God accounts for you. What have you done? Trust me, you don't want to see that ledger. You don't want to start marking that up. Well, here's how what I've done. Right? No, no, no. You deserve death. You deserve condemnation. You and I don't deserve uh, condemnation for imputed sin. What I mean by that is that sin that is uh, not, not yours but given to you, right? We, we are saved by imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness that is given to us freely by his grace. That's how we're saved. But we're not condemned for imputed sin, right? You and I are not punished because of Adam and Eve's sin upon our life. You are punished for your own sin, Original sin is not the doctrine that Adam's sin is ours. That's not what it means. I think a better term for original sin, I'm not advocating we actually change this, right? But understanding in my mind, it's original death. Adam, Eve, sin. All humanity then is born into this sin. And therefore, when we're born into sin or born into death, all we choose, everything that about us is broken, And so we can't even choose God. We can't even choose righteousness until something is fixed within us. And that's, of course, what God does. That's his grace in us. We are individually responsible for our sin. The gospel is that Jesus forgives and pays restitution for our sin. We talked about that the last couple weeks. This is restorative love. That's not, Jesus, not his debt to pay. He didn't sin. And yet it's his restorative love that he enters in and he pays the debt that we owe. You and I can never pay that debt. It's what he does. It's what he does for us. That's his grace. The point of scripture doesn't just highlight our individual sin, though, that we are, we are required to individually repent, but God deals with his people as a us, as a we, as a plurality. He does it through his promises to a people, not just to individuals. Yes, he, he can make individual promises to you, faithful to you, but he does it corporately as well. We belong to a community. That's right. gets it back to that beginning, that scriptural metaphor of marriage as the bride of Christ. Jesus isn't married to each and every one of us individually. Right? Otherwise, he'd be a great polygamist. 
That's not the metaphor. Right? He's married to the one bride of Christ. It is a metaphor, so try not to be too literal on this. It is the one bride of Christ. We are all one bride, one people that Jesus marries, that are united together with him. One bride, one body. We have a shared identity as the bride of Christ, the people of God. And Jeremiah 30, 22 says this way, and you shall be my people, God says, and I will be your God. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is, this is an echo of Hosea, which is dealing with the unfaithfulness of a bride, unfaithfulness of a spouse. Once you were not, and now you are a people. It's not an individual. You are a people. God exiled all of his people. God's temporal judgment on his people. Whether they individually participated in that sin or not, it didn't matter. All his people were being disciplined. All of them received the exile for the idolatry of a vast majority. Even if one was faithful. You can think about even how... uh, Abraham has this conversation with God about trying to save his nephew Lot, right? He says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people down there in Sodom? What about if there's 10? Right? This, this ongoing dialogue, like, okay, yeah, all right, but there's no righteous people, Abraham, right? I mean, this is, God doesn't explicitly say that, but that's what he's getting to. Yeah, I will save it. If there's one righteous person, basically, it, it gets down to 10, but you can see where it's going. And that's the reality. You and I are saved because of one righteous person, Jesus Christ. We're saved as one corporate body, the whole people. The temporal judgment of God included those that even had already repented of their own sins. The punishment still existed for them. This is a real-life example of the exile of wheat and tares together of Scripture. But the visible covenant community of God identifying with the sins of each other. We repent. In the New Testament, Jesus even speaks about this way, about generations corporately repenting together. In fact, he calls out Matthew 17, 17, Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. He just included everyone. You're all faithless, the whole generation. How long am I to be with you? You think that's hyperbole? I don't think so. I think it's true. He talks about it in the, in the letters in Revelation to his church. To all the different seven churches in Revelation, he he addresses them in plural. Corporately, not just individually. In Revelation 2.5, just an example. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. This is calling you is plural. Not individually, unless you individually repent. I mean, we may hear, read it that way because that's how we perceive the world. That is not what Christ is saying here. As you, the church, repent corporately. We are called to individually repent of our sins. But we are also called to corporately repent of our sins. Because we share 
in the interconnected covenant community of God. We can't and we don't have a private relationship with Christ. We have a public communal relationship with Christ. We are the bride. We are the body. Let's get practical here. The Bible is not saying we should just corporately join in a prayer confession every Sunday, and it's a unison prayer that we should join in. It's, it's why we do it. We do it because we want to we emphasize that we corporately confess our sins together, whether you have made that sin or not. It's appropriate to confess that. But that's not what Ezra or Nehemiah or, or Daniel or any of these, they're not leading like, hey, just say the words together and join it, and then we're all fine. No, he, they want us to move it actually because repentance is action. It's not just words. It's words and actions, and as a whole body, we need to turn back to God together. It's, it's, it's taking ownership and action for past and current sins of the community of God. This is a community that I identify with. I don't just identify with the good. I have to identify with the bad. And we are going to identify that together. And we are going to repent and confess together. You belong to me. I belong to you. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. Communal repentance of sins is a unifying act. It is a unifying act. Just like God's grace is a unifying act, identifying with each other's sin is a unifying act. It's also a very practical way of learning to be humble. Because if you have an individual mentality of sin, and then when you see someone else sin, you can go, Psh, I'm better than them. I didn't commit that sin. No, when we see someone enter sin in our community, our identity is not to think, ah, that's too bad for them. Or man, that's really tough for them. Well, that really is hard. I'm better than, no, it should be, man, I hurt for them. I identify with them because I know I am a sinner as well. I might not have that issue, but I got plenty at all, and I'm going to join in together. I'm not going to isolate people because of their sin. I'm going to surround them. I'm going to identify with them. That's a great way to start with humility. We talk about, um, we'll get this to a moment. We are the local body of Christ. It's one of the reasons practically why we ought to become members of the body of Christ. Right? As a church, we believe there's only one church. Not our church. There's only one universal church in the world. And we're, because we're all, there's only one body of Christ. And so, right? And there's, there's not just one denomination, right? Although all these people can belong to the one church. But we need to be, say, I'm going to be accountable to this local body because I am a part of the one universal church. I'm going to live in community to the one local body. Otherwise, you're saying, I'm going to just try to live by Christ by myself. It won't work. It's not how it's designed. It's not how God has set it up. You will fail. You will fail miserably. 
you go deeper into your sin. It's a community that takes care of each other, not just in grace, but in our sin. We are called as a community to call each other out in sin, to be accountable to each other. We are called to encourage each other. We are called to comfort each other. We're not called to say, hey, man, you need to really spend more time with Christ by yourself. I mean, that's not bad. But that's not our advice ever. Our advice is, man, let's be together as the body of Christ. Let me mourn with you. Let me speak into your life. Let me identify with you. Like, I know what it means to be broken. As a church, we have a, a modelship of leadership as elders. All right, the elders are not less sinners than you. Hear that very clearly. They are not dictators at this church. I am one of the elders. But the, the scriptural definition of elder is a shepherd. They might be more spiritually mature, and this is what I mean by that. That's my expectation, more spiritually mature. But here's what I mean by more spiritually mature. The first thing that I, I really look for in myself and others, can we identify our sins more quickly? And when our sins we identify or someone else identify, do we repent quickly? <laughs> or do we deny it or become defensive? That's spiritual maturity, <laughs> Is learning, like, I, I am broken, and I want to be held accountable, and I want to grow. Because the, the role of elders and the role of the whole body of Christ is the same calling, which is Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the role of the elder, and that's the role of every member of Christ, to present each other mature in Christ. Not to present yourself mature but to present each other mature, which only happens in community. That the, the, the basic role of the church is the playing out of the work of sanctification that God plays in our lives. That the primary way in which God sanctifies us is in the community of God. Repentance is the fruit of justification and sanctification in our life. God's work. It's not meritorious. It's, it doesn't earn us anything. I want you to understand that clearly. This, this act of repentance doesn't earn us, but it is mandatory, and it is the fruit of the repentance of what God is doing in our life. Restitution is just a part of repentance. It's the, restitution is, is the fruit of the repentance in our life. It's what it looks like. It's mandatory for all the theft that we have created in this world. Restorative love is not notorious for us, but it, it, is, it is mandatory. It is the fruit of repentance in our life, paying a debt that we do not owe for others, helping restore them, helping restore what was taken from them. Repentance is an individual act, but it is not just an individual act. It is a corporate act that we do together. We identify as part of the covenant community. You belong to Christ Presbyterian Church. You belong to the one body of Christ. You belong to Christ. Regardless of whether you've individually committed that sin or not, we are called to repent together. We are called to identify in our sins together and to share in the blessings of Christ together. What might this mean for us? 
not just individually as a local church, but as the church, the one bride of Christ. It means that as a church, we shouldn't hesitate to confess our sins. And let me be more specific. I think a lot of Protestant churches, when the Catholic church was struggling through all their uh, the pedophile and the sexual abuse, we said, well, see, glad it's not us. Well, guess what? Are they not part of the one body of Christ? Right? You, you, it's a mistake where you think, I'm better than. It should have actually brought us to our knees to repent that the body of Christ has been harmed. That the gospel has been harmed to some people. We should repent of that because the reality is it happens in the body of Christ. It happens in, in, in Protestant churches as well. It happens everywhere. We should be quick to repent of it in our life, not to hide those things in our life. When there's sin identified in our church, we shouldn't be hide it. We should bring it to light. And we should repent of it. We should be quick of that. If there's sex scandals, we should be quick to confess and repent of it, not hide it. If there's abusive and toxic uh, leadership cultures, we should be quick to repent of it. If there's issues of racism, and there has been in the church, we shouldn't say, well, I'm not racist. I don't know if you are or not. But I know you identify with the community of God that has been. And that probably will continue to be at times. It should be easy for us. That's the wrong word. It should be easier for us. Easier for us. Because we know what Christ is calling us to do. To repent of sins of past generations. To confess them freely. And to move on to a different direction. And not to hide and not to be uh, embarrassed by like, yeah, I'm, this is what we've done and we're working to be better. We're growing in Christ. This is who we are. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. It is difficult work. It is hard work because it's, it's, it's thin. And the, the work of sanctification is thin being exposed. And then when it's exposed, then and only then can you really be free of it. Should we ask for this in the life of our church? Should we, should we ask that God expose the sins of this individual church? Expose the sins of my heart. And then, Lord, give us a heart to confess. Give us a heart to repent. Give us a heart to do this together and not abandon each other, but to walk beside each other. This is the call of Christ in our life. Just like we think we share in our favorite team identity, you actually share in the identity of Christ. This is a real thing that you can say, I belong to Christ. That is the thing that will last forever. We belong to Christ. We belong to each other. We will confess and repent together. We are not alone in our sins and we are not alone in God's grace. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, loving Lord, I am so thankful that your grace is not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon the actions of this church, but it's wholly dependent upon your promises. 
I'm thankful that you are God that doesn't just let us be. That doesn't just let us stay in our sin. But you have a grand plan to restore us. To bring about us the full image of yourself. Individually and in the bride of Christ. Lord, be with us in this, in this local community as we, as we grow. As we struggle in this. As we suffer together in our sins. Let us not flee from them but let us go after them. Repent together. Let us be the community that you were called us to be. A broken community becoming more mature each and every day. Lord, I'm so thankful that this is your hard work that you are inviting us to be a part of. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more today. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.